the Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Jonathan Hill Dunt. He is a semi-professional football footballer, support worker who works with autistic adults. So welcome on to the show. And what obviously people locally will know you as Dunty, so I'll call you by that because that's why I know right, you are. Cheers, mate. So Thanks for my on. audience then, Dunty, uh, beyond yep. the initial introduction that I've given you, can you give them a little bit more of a nugget as as who what makes you you? Um yeah, so um quite um opinionated. So if I if I um if I think something needs to be said, I'll say it whether I know it's gonna get a bit of a backlash or sort of if it's in a positive or negative sense. If I've got something to say, I will say it. Some people like that side of me. I know some people don't like opinionated people, but I think that that's me. And I think if you've got an opinion, then you're well within your rights to sort of pass that vote on. I'm also open-minded as well. If someone has an opinion that I don't think I agree with, I'll also listen to their point of view to see if that can change my opinion. So I think it's not like I'm one of those opinionated persons that will just sort of my opinion is the right way and that's it. I will, I'm open for other thoughts as well to see if I can also change my opinion. Cause just cause it's your opinion doesn't mean it's right. Also, um, I've played football locally for Pristine for 11, 12 years. I've played where it seems as real. I'm currently at Gressford at the moment. Played in Europe for Pristine, which was also a big point for myself and also the town being from real down the road from Pristine. For the past seven years, I've worked with adults with autism. So from cases where people are very autistic and far along the spectrum where they're very challenging and not very socially able to people where they live lead a normal life and they just live away from home because they need that little bit more of independence and a little bit of help that they may not get off parents, which is a job I love and I'm very passionate about with helping do you, people. Do you think that gives you another side to obviously, um, which obviously sport is quite unique in its sense of, how would I put this? Uh, if we use single out football more specifically, it's quite bravado-esque. Does that, do you think yeah, your like, job brings you down to earth? Yeah, massively. My job makes me um, a very positive person, I think, because you know, everyone wakes up and I'll have a bad day or they'll just not be feeling too good. But then I'll go into work and I'll see someone that's not able to leave the front door without help or being with someone and or they can't go to the shop without needing the support from someone to go and buy a sandwich or things like that. And I was looking and it's like, well, my life's not like, I mean, I could have all the problems going on, but like at the end of the day, I'm healthy and I can, I've got my own independence, but I, I see people every day who don't have that independence and they can't just go out and do things what they want to do. And it all automatically brings you straight down to earth and thinks 
life isn't that bad. And I think at the same time, I think then it, it annoys me a little bit more when I see other people who are very negative, especially on social media and even some of my friends who are quite negative people. And um, they'll say, oh, my life isn't going too great. And I'm just like, well, you've got your health and that's the main thing. And I think obviously the way that mental health's going, it's very popular at the minute. Like more people are talking, not popular, but more people are talking about it. And it seems to be more openly spoke about especially on television and between friends on social media and I just think if you've got a negative mindset you're already halfway into getting into a hole I think if you're a positive person you're halfway out of that hole and you only need a little bit of a help to get out of it to become sort of a lot more positive in your life and I think this, especially with my job I don't know if I'm repeating myself here but I think obviously when you're seeing people who have the day-to-day struggles that you do that have and like not everyone struggles with autism there are people who can be autistic and you won't even know. And then obviously there are other people which it's clear that they're autistic. But seeing people every day who have struggles, even if it's just getting out of bed, getting into the shower, putting a sock on, like you got to thank, take yourself grateful for the fact that I don't have those struggles and it makes me a very positive person. So on that note then, Dunty, and obviously I'll go back to, um, God, it would be last season. Be it, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm going to talk about now? Because obviously we raised it. Uh, behind the scenes on social media after the game. Why do you think football in general then is so kind of negative in its thinking? I'm talking about from a supporter's perspective, Mm -hmm. be it, and the game, obviously you were playing for real last season. Why do people obviously forget, obviously you you played for for, for Prestatin for a number of years. Why do you think people are, get to that extent of abuse to another individual i think people are fickle people are fickle every day in life but i think more so in sport so you could win 10 games in a row and everyone loves you you can make a one mistake to lose that 11th game and all of a sudden you're not liked or people are saying oh you were, you were poor today but you could have been the best player for the past 10 games and uh, people in sport have short memories so when you're in, when you're in the bubble of a football club and you're playing every week or within that club and yet on the side that those fans see you every week and you're fighting for the same cause they love you at the moment you leave and maybe go to a direct rival which in that case I did I left I didn't leave directly to real a few years later I ended up playing at real and those fans and to be fair there was a few fans who gave me abuse that day but at the same time the fans that I noticed that were giving me abuse weren't the ones that were there supporting when I was there I think you could you get a bandwagon following especially with local rivalries and derbies because people see it as a day out, day on the beer and uh, people get excited after a beer, don't they, and say things they wouldn't normally say. And that's another thing that like, I think just because people think they can say things to you just because they paid an entry fee or on Twitter people can type things to you and then when you call them out on it, they think you've had a bite or you, they say, oh, you shouldn't be talking to people like that. Well, I don't agree with that. I think if you're willing to say things to people you've got to be willing for them to say things back to you and I think you see at all levels even the racism that's going on within football now I think obviously you see that people that are racist on Twitter and in grounds I'm going off on a tangent here I don't necessarily think they're racist I think they're just doing it for a reaction because pure racism is hatred and those people who are saying these ridiculous things on Twitter and making monkey chants and stuff like that if they were to walk past them on the street they wouldn't do it it's purely for a reaction it doesn't make it any better but they just need more education as to understanding what those actions can be affected to of that person 
Do you think the goalkeeper was more likely to get that kind of abuse because obviously they're that close? Yeah, yeah, because you're in close proximity for 90 minutes, aren't you? And obviously at our level, as soon as the game changes, ends, the fans change, and so you can be stand, stood at one end. Next end, you know, the fans have swapped round. Obviously, you won't get that professionally because they're in the stands and in their seats. But obviously, at our level, there isn't the segregation. And obviously, if we go right back to the beginning, because my audience wouldn't have known you'd have started off your sporting career as a hockey player, and yep. I mean field hockey. Why was the, the, the transition? I'm interested to know as well. Why did you transition from hockey to football? So I played football from a young age, from the age of seven or eight, and I used to play outfield. And um, I played outfield all the way through. And I remember when I was in high school, our pottery teacher was the coach of the hockey team. And this was year, year eight, so I would have been 12, excuse me. And um, I was a bit of an idiot in the first few years in school. And in pottery, I just it was a great opportunity for me and my mates to mess around a little bit. And I knocked over um, a piece of work and it smashed. And instead of sending me for the detention, I wouldn't say I was overly popular in school, but I was in the popular crowd. The teacher said to me, I will not send you for detention for the week if you come play for my hockey team. The school team is tonight. And I was like, I'm not playing hockey. It doesn't interest me one bit. Um, and he was like, well, you're going to go to detention. Obviously, my parents had to find out. So I was like, right, okay, I'll play hockey. I got them Mick taken out me by my mates a little bit. But then of a couple of my friends then thought, oh, well, if I... He's playing hockey. I might give it a go. Sort of things. And three or four of my friends ended up playing in the end, and ended up I was all right at it. Again, I used to play out, and then um, similar how it happened in football as well. The hockey, the goalkeeper got injured. I thought oh, it'd be great laugh throwing all these pads, diving round, getting a rock hard ball, getting smashed at you. And I, I was all right for it at the end. I was quite good. Ended up going to play for Real Hockey Club which was an adult. And I think that made me grow up a lot because when you play football at that age, it's all age-orientated and you're playing in under age, the 13s, 14s, 15s and so on. But hockey, because it's not a big sport, you can play adult hockey from the age of 12. But you could, and I don't know if you can now. So I was 12, 13 years of age, mixing with fully grown men. And also one of them was um, the head teacher at the high school, so who I didn't really get on with before I played hockey. But obviously he saw me out of school and realised... I wasn't an idiot. It was just me playing up to my friends when I was younger. And then also, I got a bit more slack and leeway from him in school because I need to be like, I know you're not like this. So I benefited a lot playing hockey. I, it made me more comfortable around adults in a social, away from your parents sort of thing where you haven't got that protection. Also made me grow up a little bit because, as you can imagine, the banter that was flying around in the changing room, it happens in all sports. But being a 12, 13-year-old with men, you kind of have to try and hold your own a little bit. And um, and I was playing football and hockey on either side. I'd play football in the morning, which my youth team, and then I'd also go and play hockey in the afternoon until I was about 15, 16. And then obviously one, I couldn't see, really see a future in hockey because at the time, real hockey club weren't great. And as, as obviously I grew up wanting to play football, so I'd pursued football. And then the rest is history. Then. Yeah, the rest is history. Signed for a starting when I was 17 and then stayed till... I was just 29, I think I left. And do you think because most people watch, even watching mm. on the video can't see you, and I, I've known you for probably like eight, nine years now, but mm-hmm. do you think you get a raw deal because of your appearance? Yeah, because I'm, I'm a bit bigger than what you'd expect. 
for a goalkeeper and I even still get that now. Even I played Saturday and someone came, some random bloke came up to me in the pub and say, oh, geez, look, look at the size. I wouldn't think you'd be a goalkeeper. But again, that, like what makes you think you can walk up to someone and say that? Do you know I mean, I wouldn't, like for instance, if you saw someone with bad teeth, you wouldn't walk up to them and say, geez, I wouldn't think you'd be a dentist with your teeth. You just wouldn't say it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what, Passive, but in football and sport, it seems acceptable to walk up to people and judge people on their appearance and then try and make... I mean, I've had it since I was young, so um, it's not new to me. That's water off ducks back, if anything, I'll come back with like... Got, I've already got sort of five or six pre-made replies ready because I get it some place to go. So, um, but yeah, I, I get judged quite a bit on my appearance, I think. And then people look at me and go, oh, geez, he, what, he's going to be no good. And then I've got... Re- I, I've still quite quick for my size and I've got really good reflexes and I'll make a save and I'm like oh geez wouldn't have expected him to get down to that but luckily gravity helps me with that so I do get down <laughs> quite quick <laughs> do you think do you think uh, obviously going back to the early days of, of hockey it, it helped to, to, to somewhat with your agility then yeah definitely because I didn't play in goal football till I was 15 anyway again I only went goal in football because our youth team goalkeeper got injured and I thought it'll be a laugh I'll go in goal I don't played hockey so it won't be much different and then the manager ended up turning around and said, oh, you can stay there now if you want because you're not too bad. But yeah, hockey especially because there's a lot of similar um, techniques. Um, especially the way that goalkeeping is now. It's a very uh, futsal-styled goal. And unless you're into football, you people listening may not understand that. But it's a very... You'll watch goalkeepers now, especially David De Gea, who will come out and he'll stand tall and he'll just close his legs to try and block it. sort of like a K block. And it's the same in hockey. And that's basically why I've learned that. So I did that from an early age but a goal kick, sorry goalkeeper coaches would always try and coach that out of me because it wasn't a football style of goalkeeping and now you can see it's coming in so I'm not saying I'm a, I was ahead of the times but back then when I was younger people would it's very um, technique orientated and it was like no this is how you die for goal this is how you die to save the ball this is how you do certain things and I've always been quite an unorthodox goalkeeper made saves my feet and my legs and that is definitely because of the hockey background yeah, but you still got a reputation. Even occasionally, and Scurry will come up. You stopping a penalty in the cup final? Oh yeah, I, I've got quite a good record for penalties as well. Somehow I get. Um, I, I remember a journalist asked me if there's any sort of like thought process to it. I was just like, well, no, just guess. I mean, you can only go left or right or down the middle, can't it? So it's a one out of three chance of uh, going the right way. And, is there um, any is there any mind games in terms of being the, obviously the person putting it on the spot and the goalkeeper? Uh, usually, I'll always just try and delay it as much as possible. So I always try to say things like try and tell the ref that the ball's not on the spot, or if the ball comes near me, I'll try and kick it away a little bit just to try and delay the penalty taker getting the ball in his hand and taking the penalty. Because obviously, the longer it goes on, the more eyes are on him, the more pressure gets on him. But obviously, from that perspective, Dunty. The higher you go up, there's more analysis around it. Mm-hmm. What, what do obviously semi-professionals do? Because obviously, to be able to watch what a player will do on certain penalty takes is going to be more difficult because they're not going to always show certain games, even on highlights. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, the higher up you go, you can't get up. Like even in the Cymru Premier, the top league within Wales, every game is recorded. Every game has highlights. So... You, if, as a goalkeeper, if I was still playing in that league, I would be watching all the highlights from the previous week. So if I knew that their penalty take was, I knew if he scored three or four penalties, I'd find out the games to find out which way he'd gone or if there was any sort of pattern to where he takes penalties of certain run-ups. And it, it may seem minimal, but those minimal advantages can help you. 
So, a lo- so do you think with how television has evolved, has made it easier for players then, or goalkeepers more specifically? Yeah, definitely, especially on the analysis side, and more so now because when I um, when I went to uni when I was eighteen, there was no sort of courses, sort of analysis, football analysis, sport and analysis, and sports science or sports science, sorry, but nothing analysis. As when now you can go to university to become a sports analyst, and every football team now even starting to have a sports analysis, you know, and like they're not a professional team, so you know, when you're watching a game from a different view, so if you're like as a manager or as a goalkeeper, especially any player on the pitch, you can see the game from your opinion and your position placed. So if you're watching it from a higher vantage point, you can see a lot more different things. You can see the full shape of play. I think with any sport, um, any sport you play, like you say, you play basketball yourself, don't you? Mm. And if you can see the pitch as high as possible to see the patterns of play and the shape of where players are and the average positions and stuff like that, and how many sprints and how many times in possession you've done with the ball... It's become massive, hasn't it? But I think because the advantages you can gain from any statistical analysis, if you can gain an advantage from it, then every club is going to do it, aren't they? Do you think, obviously, from that perspective, for for each club that you've been at, it's been slightly different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I, when I started off um, at Pristatim, it was nowhere near the club it is now. So we were three divisions lower. We had a, a six or seven year where we got two or three promotions in a row, then we ended up in the Welsh Premier League. And then three years later, we were in Europe. So it was sort of a really quick upturn of where we were to sort of playing parks and park football, where um, you wouldn't even sometimes wouldn't have a ref, as well as six, seven years later, you're playing in Europe in front of in Croatia. I think we played in front of 12,000 people, which is madness. Well, it's, it's, it's um, I think, and people are even fan perspective, because when you played that, what was it? Baltic one. I can't think which country they're from. Uh, Latvia. Yeah, it was, La- I think. La- I, I think everybody lapped it within the area. Lapped it up because mm-hmm. like, well, what's the chances of, of the team getting through? Probably not very likely. No, That's, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, especially when we lost the first leg, we had to go. We went away to Latvia two one down, and then we ended up winning the second game two one, then going through on penalties, and even that was mental. And then after after it all. Um, died down we were all sat on the coach and we were just like oh, we've got to play in Croatia next week you know, we're only part time a lot of lads work and they got to try and everyone's ringing around their bosses and texting to say oh, I, need, I need next week off work well it's it probably is it, it's a, is it a um, you got to pinch yourself moment then in terms of being definitely. A, playing as a professional outfit yeah definitely because what the team we played in Latvia is kind of uh, the team was linked to a factory so they were the main sponsor so all those players would have been paid through the factory and then been given minimal jobs, but they were full-time footballers. And um, so obviously all the factory, it was quite a hostile atmosphere. You getting picked up from the hotel and having police escorts to the training games and the training, sorry, and then to the games and police escort home. And then certain people in the hotel were saying, the staff were saying, oh, don't go to this area of town tonight because you might get into some trouble because the fans were in there. So like, it's a, it is a real eye-opener to... Um, to playing in Pristatin at the time and playing in front of maybe 250 people it's a few thousand and like really hostile but then what was what was it like to then go and, and then play uh, Reika in Croatia that was, that was brilliant because obviously we that, the game in Latvia was on the Thursday night we flew home the Friday we had a game on the Saturday because we already had friendlies planned 
and then we flew out again to Croatia on the Tuesday. Spent a couple of days in Croatia, played the Thursday, but the whole build-up was mental. And are there two, because obviously you put it in perspective for, for the listeners, that's also a seaside uh, town as well. Do you think they're yep. still quite closely linked based on, because I think after the fact, they obviously wish the starting the best of luck for the season and mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah. Well, when we went out there, I think they thought, without really knowing much about us, I think they thought we were a full-time team. Because I think they uh, just, ex- obviously they, ex- they won the first game 5-0. So I don't think really think they expect what they ex- knew. Sorry. I don't think they knew what they were getting when they came over. Because when they came over to visit here and came down to our ground, because we played the game at Rill, mm-hmm. but they trained our pitch. And because our chairman at the time and their chairman got on very well, they, have, they had a good relationship. When they came down to see our facility, I think it was that's when they realised like, geez, how have you got to this level? Look at what you've got. Because they, had, a month before we played and they a player from um, the Italian Serie A for two and a half million euros and like their squad was worth 20, 27 million altogether and they're playing against us and I don't really think they understood the level difference of um, what we were up against and they were shocked when our chairman told their chairman that one of our players couldn't get a time off work to go and play in the game Was he got in then? Yeah, Jack Jack Lewis it was. Yeah, he, um, he worked in a car factory at the time and I remember him saying that he was really struggling to get a time off work. I mean, the club even rang his boss and wrote a letter to try and um, give him the time off, but they wouldn't allow it because they only had two people off. So it was a shame for Jack to miss out on that opportunity, but obviously and then if someone else got the opportunity to play instead of him. So sort of one person misses out, but it's next person up. But what was that? Well, obviously, when you came home, what what's the what was it like? Because obviously, you're already out of the Europe virtually anyway with that. Yeah. With the, mm-hmm. with the first leg, what was it kind of like to play in front of? I think it was about two and a half thousand, if maybe a bit more at real. Yeah, it was a good crowd. It's a good good experience. It was just nice to see all the lads' families. Um, at the time, the team we had, we it was literally like you just playing football with your mates, and we could. We'd, got ourselves into a situation where we were playing well above ourselves. That likes Mike Parker, Reese Owen, David Hayes, Ross Stevens, Tommy Holmes, Gibbo, the manager. Like We were all really good mates at the time. Andy Parker, I could go on with all the players, but it was it was such a good laugh because you're basically living like a professional footballer for two weeks, getting flown to Latvia, flown to Croatia, relaxing in a hotel, going swimming, swimming in the sea. It was just a mad two weeks, really. But did you think? Did you think after that fact that the the kind of the bubble burst and it kind of? Well, I can say this, but it's, whether or not anybody locally took offence, it's like I'll take it on the chin. But do you <laughs> think obviously the bubble burst after that, the highs of it, and then the rest yeah, of the season was a bit of a struggle because um, the the prize money for you. I, I don't know the exact figure, so I don't really want to say in case I'm wrong. But obviously, you get. You qualify for the first round of the European qualifiers and you get X amount of money. Let's call it 100 grand for talking's sake. I don't know if that's correct, but it'll be around that. And then that's what you get for going, getting into the first round. And then no one at Pristatin really expected to get through a round. They were just accepting that was the amount of money we're going to get. And for a club like Pristatin, we've never seen that amount of money. It's a lot of money. So then get through a round to the second round, you get another round of prize money, which effectively doubles. So let's say it's gone up to 200 grand. Again, I don't know if that's factual but it'll be around that you know you have to take out costs of flights and hotels and players wages and that but 
when we came, when we that was money that the club never had, and I just think the club got a little bit excited seeing the money that was coming in, and the, the wages went up a lot. So personally, mine didn't, but a lot of players were coming in, three or four players on a, on good money over what you'd get for a, a full time job with minimum wage working. I'd say players came in on quite a lot of money. I think the club tried running before they could walk. What they should have done, and it's easy to say in hindsight, was set the foundations for the club to be self-sufficient, put a 3G pitch down, and things like that. I know they looked into it, but um, that was the start of the downfall getting to Europe. So it's kind of like highest high has also been the start of the lowest low because for two years after, the club really struggled financially and obviously on the pitch because the year after, we should have got relegated, but we got a reprieve because the team couldn't get promoted because of their licences. The year after, they got relegated officially. And then obviously then came all the tax trouble with the tax bill, which the fans and the club helped raise to clear that debt. But do you think on that note, though, Dunty, that obviously a small town or small club like Bristatin kind of gets picked on more so because you think of the likes of... Uh, Cardiff City's been in trouble with with a tax man. Yeah, had a bit of a reprieve. Yeah. Why do you think they go out and single? Obviously, it's a football club, and you got to make probably you've got to, you've got to yeah, make probably it. easy targets, I suppose, isn't it? Like I can imagine Cardiff have great lawyers and great um, accountants and things like that, so they can maybe try and work out a payment plan, or they're able to sort of fend it off a little bit to be able to pay it off in chunks. And the tax man can probably see. A club like Cardiff has got the ability to bring the money in to pay the bill as well. If you look at Pristatin, all football clubs at our level lose money. It, like, it's, ama- it's amazing for me to see how people who have got money put money into football clubs to pay wages to try and get themselves in, to get the club into a better position when they don't really get anything back. And like, it's, it's great for those people. And like, you can't knock anyone who owns a football club at non-league level or semi-professional because you don't make any money from it. But I suppose the tax man looked at Pristan to go, well, if you owe us X amount of money, I can't see where you're going to get this money to make sure this doesn't happen again. So that's maybe why I, I wasn't at the club at the time, so I don't know the whole ins and outs. But um, I'm guessing that's only it's an easy easy target, I'm guessing, for to go through the courts. And obviously, um, why why did you leave to, to, to go to New Ventures? Then? Is it because of um, so I, yeah, I just wasn't playing. And um, at the time, I was 29, coming up to 30. And I was just sort of like, I've been at Pristine for 12, 13 years. And I was just like, I think it's time, the right time for me to leave. And I think I've, I wasn't playing great at the time. And maybe I'd personally myself gone a bit stale because I got comfy just being there, signing there year after year. Oh, it's all right, I'll get in eventually. And um, I think the manager, Gibbo, at the time, probably got a bit sick of me. I was getting a bit sick of Gibbo. And I think it was just at the time it was a, a joint decision to just um, try something new. At the time, uh, two of my good friends had got the manager's job at a club called Gresford in Wrexham. And um, at the time, I was spending a lot of time in Wrexham because I've got, I've got friends up there and things like that. So it just made sense. So was, um, I dropped down two leagues to play, but it was just sort of like, I'll go there, I'll play. I'll just sit, do it for a year, see if I enjoy it, and then I'll find something else. And in the end, I loved it and ended up staying there for three years until the manager then went to Denby, who followed Eddie to Denby, stayed there for 18 months and obviously the opportunity uh, came for him to go to Rill and that's it. I, that's how he ended up at Rill. Personally, I would have never seen myself playing for Rill 
after spending so much time for starting. But I think in football or any sport, if you say things will never happen, you'll always look stupid because things always do happen. So I don't think in any sport or even in life, really, you can say never because what you think one month, two, three months down the line could be completely different. And your situations change, do you know what I mean? If um, if you've got four or five clubs after you, then obviously you've got your pick. But if, you're, if you've only got one club after you, then that's the one club you've got to go to if you want to continue playing. But on that note, though, Dante, obviously you are from Real. Why mm-hmm. did you never think you would... Because if I put it in perspective for people that aren't from North Wales, yep. you go back mm-hmm. probably 10, probably 15, 20 years ago when you and I were kids. That was, that yeah, was the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's weird, actually, because I remember I was in school and yeah, I'd say I'd go and watch Real when I was younger and I'd say, oh, I'd, I'd love to play here one day. And then you think back now, but obviously I think just over the time and the rivalry and the games that we'd had against Real, they'd always been kind of like nasty games, like I can expect from a typical rivalry. And also, for starting at the time with a little underdog and Real with a big giant at the time, so you kind of grew up resenting them a little bit because a lot of local lads who were good enough to play for Real we're told, we're told they weren't good enough because they'd spent a lot of money to bring in players from all here or everywhere. Like, so like myself, Michael Parker, Dave Hayes, Jack Lewis, the all players who played John Fisher-Cook for another one, Stephen Hall. I could name all these names that local people know from football. We're all at real at one point and never got a chance or many chances in the first team. And that's purely because their attitude was local players aren't good enough. And that's why Pristatin worked was because Gibbo saw an opportunity to sign lads who he thought were good enough to come play for Staten to sell them dreams like, well, if you come play for me for two, three years and Dave Fuller previously to that when he was the manager, I will get you into the Welsh Prem and then it's kind of like sticking two fingers up to him and going, well, I am good enough. We are good enough to play in this league. And do you think that's kind of has gone flipped 180 degrees? Obviously, I went to the Derby at Christmas and you could kind of hear the real fans saying... Oh, the shoes on the other foot now, and they thought they were going to get a hiding, and obviously they didn't. Mm-hmm. But that's that's probably because Bristaton didn't turn up. But that's that's an argument for another day. But in terms of it's kind of gone the other way, whereas they resent Bristaton now because for, for yeah, like things come in all, cycles, don't all, they? All, all well, other than football, obviously economic reasons as well. Yeah, yeah. Even like, don't you look at anything like fashion, politics, sport. Everything comes in cycles. I even like I've, I'm Manchester United fan, and I've grown I've grown up knowing Manchester United as the best team in England. Now it's Liverpool, and it hurts, but I'm, I'm at peace with it because I know it comes in cycles. Liverpool were a great team in the 70s and the 80s, so it, like things come in cycles, don't they? Like at one point, somehow bootleg jeans were in big flares at the bottom. I can't looking at them. I can't see how they were ever in fashion, but they were in it fashion. And skinny leg jeans weren't, and then obviously now. It, it comes in everything. I'm going off on a tangent here massively, but it, things coming on economically, like you say, financial. Real aren't in a position at the minute where they have got the finances to uh, pay players a lot of money to try and get out of the league. So Real are trying to rebuild on and off the pitch. And Pristatin have been lucky enough to have an owner come in who's willing to back Neil and the club to try and get them in the league. And I, th- I think they should win the league this year. They've got a healthy lead. We'll, we'll see because it's we'll see, never, yeah, like you know in, like you in, say, yeah. in sport and football it's never well, over to the fat ladies thing no. exactly but obviously my, my final question to you then Dante then if you had to sit down with any sports person dead or alive then who would that be and why 
Um, it's a tough one, really. It depends what type of chat I want. I'll throw a couple out just a bit. If it was to... Um, one of my favourite people at the moment is Peter Crouch, purely because I love his podcast. And by listening to it, you get to see and hear his personality. And I just think he'd be brilliant to sit down with and have a pint with, just have a chat and like talk about his career. But just to pick someone who um, who has probably passed away... I don't know. It's quite tough because I'm I'm still only 33. So not many of my sort of sporting heroes have been at that age where they've passed away. So I think Sir Alex Ferguson is someone that um, I'd love to have a proper... I've met him once. It's someone I probably would love to have a massive chat with just to talk about football with him. But um, yeah, I'm still young enough where none of my heroes have died. Touch wood. So my final question to you then before we wrap up the show is if you had to summarise what we've been speaking about today mm-hmm. for people to take away, what would that be? I think don't let um, don't let people get you down. Just because people have one opinion of you doesn't mean that it, that makes you you. And I was think like say, uh, people off the pitch will always try and sort of wind you up. And I think that's in any sport. People will try and get that mental edge to try and get a reaction out of you to take your mind off the game and that's I see that as a, a positive because I see it as like they see me as a good player and they're trying their best to try and get into my head so I don't play my usual game and that's the way that my dad told me as a kid because obviously my dad had come to watch and he'd hear the stuff that people would say and it'd be quite tough for him to not say anything and that's all he ever used to say to me if people are trying to put you off it's because they don't want you to play your best and it's because they see you as a threat and I think that's the mindset. That's one way of looking at it to try and take the positive out of a negative. So once again, Jonathan Dunty, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Top man, thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. Cheers, pal. Thank you. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let John and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging me on Instagram at James O Roberts Eleven. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And if you had any additional questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in the Mindset Athlete. And also not forgetting, and one especially for the amputees listening to this podcast, I have recently created a Facebook group called The Amputee Coach fitness and nutrition for amputees to help you lose 10 to 30 pounds so make sure to check out the links they will be in the description you can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general so once again thanks for listening and i'll catch you next week for another episode of the mindset athlete podcast